Well, we are in a controversial series. It's called Find Your Voice, uh, Learning to Discuss Current Issues with Grace and Truth. Let's just all admit we could be doing a better job talking about issues in our culture with grace and with truth. This whole series is an admission on my part that I feel I could be doing a better job, you could be doing a better job of talking about issues that are in our culture with grace and respect and truth. We've already covered a lot of ground. We started off with Islam and terrorism, what a few weeks those were, then we moved on to God and government just in time for the election. You know, it's already paid off in my life. I was at a funeral yesterday and um, one of the men in our church, Bruce Berg, passed away. Uh, and two of his neighbors who were Muslims came to his funeral, drove an hour to get there. It was so sweet. After the service, these two Muslim guys came up to me and they wanted to have a conversation about my sermon because I mentioned Jesus and the gospel. And, and I'm like, wow, all right, here we go. And it started out with, with this older uh, Muslim man saying to me, 99% of what you just said, X. 1% I agree with. And I'm like, all right. And a few years ago, I don't know where that conversation would have gone, but we had a 30-minute long, respectful, I mean, honorable, intelligent conversation. And at the end of the day, we had become friends. He's like, we should get together and talk more. And it's just the quality of the conversation that I'm going for here on these topics. So uh, as we move on today to part two of Sanctity of Life, let me just point out that abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, my goodness, what an explosive topic. And as we look around our world, there's uh, usually either a whole lot of truth or a whole lot of grace. Hard to find both of those things in the same place. So we're striving to be able to talk about these things rationally, respectfully, and I'm sure there are people in the room today who are going to disagree with me. Hey, let me just thank you in advance that you would give me a respectful hearing. And I trust that as you're forming your opinions on these things, that like us, you would really love to learn how to share your opinions with grace and truth as well. Okay, so if only for that reason, that together we're learning how to have better conversations about this, I'm just grateful that you would give me a hearing on this issue. It is a hard issue to discuss, the topic, because it generates powerful emotions on both sides, strong opinions surface immediately, and it divides our country. <clears throat> the conversation is highly complicated. Why? Well, first of all, it's personal. You're dealing with families. You're dealing with bodies. And it's, it's very personal. It's also political. You have machines of politicians who have well-refined arguments that have uh, been distributed widely. Uh, we've heard them a lot. They're very, the, and so it, it's political. It's also financial. There's now billions of dollars cycling through the business side of this topic. It's, and people have a vested interest in one side or the other. It's financial. It's also spiritual. The Bible speaks about life at its earliest stages. And also it's moral because uh, we must decide how others deserve to be treated inside and outside the womb, even as we have these conversations. It's a moral issue. You mix it all together and you have quite a gigantic topic on our hands. In addition, I think most people, whether they're pro-life or pro-choice, would, would be generally pro-life or pro-choice. For me, I mean, up until about three years ago, I don't know that I was, I, I, I know that I was generally pro-life. I don't know that if you had started asking me questions about the finer points of the debate, if I would have had good answers about frozen embryos or stem cell research or, you know, tough cases. I, I don't know that I could have had a great conversation about those things with you. My convictions have really developed and formed a lot over the last three years and even over the last three weeks. 
And so my guess is that you're probably either generally pro-life or generally pro-choice, and you probably wouldn't appreciate being thrown into either extreme category of either of those views. And let me tell you, there are some extreme pro-life people out there, militant, obsessed, even sometimes violent. They are extremists on my side of the argument. And there are people on the pro-choice side who are extreme, militant, no rules, no listening, this is it and everybody should comply. And I'm guessing you don't want to be grouped with those people. Neither do I. So how can we form our thinking? And my heart for you as a Christian is that I hope you would have a stronger, more biblical conviction at the end of this message so that you're ready to have better conversations. Whether the conversations come up at the doctor's office, in the classroom or the break room or wherever, um, my hope is that you would learn better how to talk about these things with grace and truth. Why don't I pray before we go any further? And uh, I'm sure you're praying for me in your heart too, and then let's tackle this this issue. (coughs) Father, thank you for uh, giving me a voice here. I'm sure that others could stand up and articulate a great position on this, and I'm Hoping, Lord, that as you sift through the hearts here in the room, that everyone would be striving to gain understanding. Help us, Lord, to be gracious and considerate of others, especially those who disagree with us. May we model this love and consideration for the world. We do pray that you would give us wisdom uh, from many sources, from uh, the medical world, biology, from, from law, that you would give us wisdom, Lord, from your word. And help us as we reason through these things to be wise and discerning by your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a short history of the issue, too, just so that we can find out how we got here. In the turn of the century, I mean in the 1900s, it's important to understand that um, every major institution in America and Europe, including major papers like the New York Times, was decidedly against birth control. <clears throat> Listen, I didn't just say abortion. Birth control. In, in all of its forms, was something that was looked down on by society at large. And not only in the U.S., but in Europe, the thought of birth control was something that was rejected by the vast majority of people um, in the Western world. Uh, they gave reasons that included moral arguments and even religious arguments, claiming that that's God's arena and we should not be meddling with things that are of God. Uh, so that's where it started in the early 1900s. Now, things started to change, and people started rethinking the Christian view on marriage, family, and children. And it was the Christian view that prevailed in the early 1900s. And so it was October 16th of 1916 that Planned Parenthood opened, founded by Margaret Sanger. Um, She was considered a radical at the time, but she was against abortion. She wasn't considered radical because of her views on abortion. She was considered radical because of her views on birth control, contraception, and also population control. That alone made her a radical, just so that you can see and understand where the world was at the time. It wasn't until the 1930s that minds began to change, and in the world and in the church, in some of the more liberal churches, uh, the, the predominant Christian view on marriage, family, and children started to be challenged. In the 30s, that's when people started talking about these things in a different light. And then it was in the 40s when we have the first instance where Planned Parenthood was called into factories where women were working to support the war effort and to perform abortions, and uh, the government looked the other way. It was illegal, but the government looked the other way. And they did so because they thought it was supporting the war effort, which was more of a priority. And that was the first time 
when politically, culturally, the practice was accepted for a time. The um, sexual revolution that exploded in the 60s forever changed the religious and social and sexual landscape of our country. Uh, The 60s changed everything. And if you combine the sexual revolution then with the invention of the birth control pill, new reproductive technology, more sophisticated abortion technology, you will see that our beliefs and our behaviors on this issue have developed rapidly and recently. This is a recent and a rapid development on this issue. Now, I want to be careful. Just because something is newer, just because people haven't done it before, that doesn't make it wrong, right? I'm not saying because so many people before never had to make these choices, therefore it's all wrong today. That's, that's an argument from chronology, and that doesn't make any rational sense. So I'm not saying because this is a newer dilemma, it's therefore wrong. What I am saying is we better look back over our shoulder at all of the generations that lived before us and see that we are doing things to marriage, family, and children that no generation before us has done. That should give us great pause. And frankly, we have a lot of explaining to do to them based on our actions. It's a very rapid and a very recent development. It wasn't until Roe v. Wade in 1973 that abortion became officially legal. And yet it wasn't until 2003 that partial birth abortion was banned. And it wasn't even until April 18th of 2007 that the Supreme Court upheld that ban that a child partially delivered cannot be aborted. 2007 is when the government finally figured out that moral dilemma. It's a very recent issue. And it's a very widespread and rapidly developing issue. Planned Parenthood last year alone earned $1.3 billion. It's a billion-dollar business. They performed 324,000 abortions just last year. 324,000 abortions last year. We're not talking about a periodic issue that comes up once in a while. They're performing 887 a day, 36 an hour, about one every other minute. We're talking about something that now happens every other minute in our country. This is a rapidly developing thing, and what I'm telling you is only the United States numbers, not even what's going on in the world around us. This affects people because Planned Parenthood receives about half a billion dollars in government support every year, tax dollars. All right, so that's just an overview of where we're at and how we got here. The question now is, what's my opinion and how do I share it respectfully? Let me give you a little review. We spent a lot of time last week talking about the biblical foundation for life. And so please go back and hear that message if you weren't here. But write this down. This is a review in your bulletin. We learned last week that God designed and built all forms of human life. Life is not an accident. It is statistically impossible to show that mathematically that life developed itself without a guiding intelligent hand. We know that now the science shows that. And it's looking away from the science that would help people cling to the view that life somehow miraculously started itself without a divine hand. It is truly mathematically impossible now that we know how complex life really is. God takes credit for life in its simplest form, but we learn in the Bible that a a parasite or E. coli is a very different form of life than you because the Bible says that he made you in his image, which means you are an elevated and a a prominent form of life. Jot this down. God created humans in his image, and therefore God gives us value and identity. All of this comes from God. We understand that your life is not your life. God gave it to you, 
And because he gave it to you, it's his and not yours. Because it's his, he can take it back at any moment and he has not taken anything that is rightfully yours. Thankfully, he's a good God and he treats your life with the utmost highest respect because you were made in his image. But your life is his. Therefore, the life of everyone else who is human belongs to God and not to us. We're dealing with God's property here and therefore we have to be very careful what we do with it. We also learned last week from a theological perspective that God personally is related to a human being before they're even born. In Jeremiah 1.5, it says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God told Jeremiah, he knew Jeremiah fully before any of his attributes were clear. God knew Jeremiah completely before anybody knew anything about him. God has a personal knowledge and understanding of each human life before it's fully formed and before that life is expressed. There's even a sense of destiny where God has plans laid out for that person, works for them to do. As God told Jeremiah, he was going to have a special call and he was going to be a prophet to the nations and all that was settled before he even formed him in the womb. God's special relationship to each human life and God's ownership of each human life gives us a very powerful argument that from a biblical perspective, life is to be honored from its conception. Based on God's relationship alone to that person, we should honor that and understand God knows that person fully and has a plan for their entire life. Their beginning and their end is in his hands, not in ours. That's our strong biblical case. But there are other ways to argue for the pro-life position. We can talk about rational, medical, moral, biological arguments as well, and then you can add them all up and decide what you believe. But let's move on to what we're asking today. Number one, the main question in the argument is this. What is the unborn? Every conversation should come back to this main question. What is the unborn? What is it? Is it life? If it is, is it human life? If it's not, why not? Is it life? Is it human life? If so, why? If not, why not? Um, jot this down. If the unborn is a human life, then abortion is morally wrong. If the unborn is a human life, then abortion is morally wrong. And we believe that abortion unjustly takes the life of an unborn human being. We see the value of human life from God's perspective in the Bible, and we also honestly observe the value placed on human life from an area very early stage in humanity. Um, We run into some tough uh, contradictions if we don't assign life and value to humans from very early on, at least, if not from the beginning. Um, In our own family, my wife's cousin had uh, had a baby very early in the pregnancy. The child had a very low chance of making it. And this child was, was premature, was born, and I remember the pictures, and I remember the prayer requests, and I remember everything that had to be done for this child to give him just a chance, a fighting chance at surviving. And I remember the joy when he made it through a week, and the joy when he made it through a month, and now I can see the joy seeing him at family parties running around because he made it, he survived, and he is a growing boy. And yet when I look back and I reflect on that, he should have been in the womb. He was outside of the womb prematurely. Based on all of the money, all of the time, all of the, all of the monitoring, everything that was given to that child, would he have deserved it if he was in a different place or not? You see, we observe with our own behavior how much value and love is assigned to a child from a very early stage of development. The question is, does that life deserve that care in the womb just as we give it to them out of the womb? 
If the unborn is a human life, abortion is morally wrong. Now, if the unborn is not a human life, write this down, abortion is not immoral. If you can make a case that it's not a human life or not a human life yet, it's really not a moral problem to do anything because all you're dealing with is tissue. All you're dealing with is the equivalent of a tooth that fell out or a fingernail that was cut off. This is a non-human life. This is a part of something that isn't human. And sometimes I get confused when I hear people who believe that the life in the womb is not a child talking about as if this is such a hard decision to make and such a hard thing to talk about. And I'm thinking, why? If we're talking about something that isn't a human life, why is there any debate about it? It's simply a tooth. It's nothing. It's nothing human. Why is it so hard to talk about this? Where does that affection, where does that debate come from? If the unborn is not a human life, abortion is not immoral. But if you argue that the unborn is not a human life from conception, you have some questions you have to answer. When does it become a human life? When? When does it get the right to live? At what point? Uh, Birth? very early on, and you have to answer the question, what is required in your mind for this being to qualify as a human? What's required? And then you have to ask the question, who makes the list of what's required up? Who decides when a person gains entrance into the human family? Who makes the rules? If the unborn is not a human life, abortion is not immoral, and you're faced with the very hard question of answering when does it become a child. President Obama was famously asked this question by Rick Warren, and in the end, he refused to answer it. He said, it's above my pay grade. But if you don't know, if, if you're not sure that it is a human life, is, that gro- is ignorance grounds to be able to end what's going on in the womb? If a lifeguard was sitting on top of their chair at a pool and suddenly the skies grew dark and the lifeguard, she couldn't see down into the pool and your child was drowning at the bottom and she didn't jump in to save it and the child died and later she said, well, I couldn't be sure it was a human life. Does her uncertainty uncertainty about whether that is indeed a human child justify her allowing it to die? No. Because if there is uncertainty over whether it is or isn't a life, the tie should go to the life. If there's any, any chance that there is indeed human life there, we work to save it. We do that once somebody is outside the womb. Why wouldn't we do that once somebody is inside the womb? So here's the question. Is it a human life? Is it not a human life? The main question is, what is the unborn? Number two, our view is that human life begins at conception. Human life begins at conception. We believe this based on our theology, but that's not only it. We believe it based on other reasons. We have to to talk about the issue at this stage of development because the vast majority of abortions happen very early on in the pregnancy. A lot of people who are loud on this issue, they're more talking about second, third trimester. They're showing pictures of abortions happening. They're arguing against partial birth. Very, very, very rarely does it happen. There are tens of thousands of those, and we should be worried about that. But if you can't make a concise, compelling argument why life should be protected from one living cell on, you're losing the vast majority of abortion victims. You've got to be able to present an argument from the first cell. 
We believe human life begins at conception. The biblical argument for this comes from Psalm 139, 13 to 14, where David said this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The Bible teaches that God is the one working from the very beginning, knitting together every stage of development of the person. It's a person, and it's God who is assembling the person. Therefore, abortion would end what God is doing. Um, But is there another argument? I mean, can you give me more than just the Bible says so? Yeah, we can go there. Um, You might think to yourself, come on, you're telling me that when a fertilized egg appears and there is one living human cell, that's the equivalent of an 80-year-old man who's walked this earth and How can you say that? There's no resemblance. Well, let me just point out first that that one living cell is living. It is life. We know that. We know what life is. It is life. You must define what form of life it is. I say it's a human life. If you say it's something different, you need to prove that. Prove to me how it's not a human form of life. Because I can prove to you how it is. That one cell is not even a simple form of human life. It is highly complicated. And we know that now because of what's gone on in recent research. The U.S. government in 1990 launched what was called the Human Genome Project. If you're not familiar with what that is, in 1990, the U.S. government took one cell, one cell out of one person and pulled it out. And they unraveled the DNA found in that one cell. Even though it's microscopic, it's stretched six feet long. The whole project in 1990 was they were going to map out what they found, the information found on that cell. If you know biology, you know there are four chemical letters, A, G, C, T, all in sequence along the double helix, and all they did was type out what they found in that cell, one cell. What did they find? Something simple or something complicated? Well, it cost $2.7 billion to complete this work. Your tax dollars, $2.7 billion, a thousand researchers from 20 institutes across six nations were involved. It took them 13 years to map what they found in one cell. They found enough information to fill 5,000 books. And they discovered that a complete copy of your DNA is found in every one of the 100 trillion cells in your body. The full library of your DNA is, is in every cell in your body. Life, at its most basic form, is breathtakingly complex. That one cell is life, and you have to tell me if it's human life, and if you say it's not human life, you need to prove that. Because biology and genetics is on the side of humanity. Now, as soon as you say human life begins at conception, someone will say, that can't be. And... What I would say at that point is this. Well, tell me how does the unborn differ from you? And there's really only four ways that the unborn life differs from you. If they can show that either one of these four makes this a non-human life, they win. If you can show that neither of these four makes it non-human, you win. So jot this down. Uh, How does the unborn differ from you? First, it differs in size. It's a different size. Now, let me just ask you this. If something is smaller, does it make it less valuable? If something is bigger, does it make it more valuable? Does size in any way change the 
value of a living being. Well, would that argument apply to a newborn? A newborn is much smaller than LeBron James. Would you say the newborn is therefore less human than LeBron James? Does size create value, personhood? Does size give rights? If so, you have a big problem on your hands because how big? How big? A teenage girl has not reached her full height yet. An 11-year-old boy is not fully grown. Does growth give humanity or does growth simply show the kind of thing a life already is? I would say biology is, again, on the side of the pro-life view. Size does not change the form of life something is. Size reveals the form of life something is, and it just becomes a bigger form of the thing it already is. Size can't give a person personhood. So if it's a human life from the beginning, it's a human life regardless of its size. Okay, how else does the unborn differ from you? Next, the level of development. As soon as you say, well, size doesn't create humanity, people will say, well, come on. It's got no brain. It can't think. There's no feelings. No kidneys, lungs, no feet, no fingernails, no nothing. There's nothing there. An animal resembles a human more than this thing. How can you say it's morally equivalent to taking the life of a human? What they're arguing is that the level of development of this life, because it is alive, the level of development of this life changes the kind of life that it is. Can they sustain that argument? If it's at an earlier stage of development, is it not human? Is it not human? And if you say it's less human, can you take the life of something that is less human, or are you still morally bound to its fate? Here's the thing. When it comes to the level of development, you have to understand how life works. Um, Life doesn't work like a, like a car. You, you don't bring the parts to the factory, assemble them all together, tires, pistons, you know, exhaust, turn the key, then it, then it runs. It's a car. Life doesn't work that way. From the first cell, the engine is on. It is alive. It is a, the engine is running. The ignition switch has been turned. This is a living thing. The parts don't get added in, and then one day it springs to life. Life is there from the first cell. Math people are going to love this. If you're a math person, you're welcome. But life, if you study biology, does not grow through addition, meaning that one first cell doesn't keep getting new shippings from Amazon. You know, over time, the parents don't keep providing more material, nor does the mother. Everything necessary to form a full human is present inside that cell from day one. The only thing the mother gives is nutrition. Life grows from outside of the original cell. Life is there, and life grows out of there. It's not addition. You know what cells do. You learn this in biology. They divide. They don't add. They don't take in and add. They divide. And then when they divide, they multiply. It's division You know what division is, right? It's an operation where you take a whole and you divide it into a part. You know what multiplication is. It's where you take something and you multiply the whole thing once again. Because we're dealing with division and multiplication, it's a whole human life from day one. The parts come from the whole. The parts don't add up to the whole. The parts come from the whole. And therefore, the parts don't create the whole, they reveal it. 
Knowing that alone at the biological level gives you a strong argument. Listen, the whole human life is there and the parts come from it. Let me give you one more profound thing that I realized this week. Blew me away. I had to go and tell 10 people about it. I'm arguing that a whole human life is there from cell number one. Prove it. On day two, that little cell has worked so hard it becomes two cells. It divides and it becomes two. Now there are two. In rare cases, that second cell can break away, leave the project, break away, and become an identical twin. The first thing that comes from this thing can become a whole second human being. And the first one hasn't lost anything. It still becomes a human being. Now we have proof that there's enough material, living material, to produce two whole humans. How can you argue it's a part of a human when we get two in the end? You can't make a rational argument that it's a part. It's a whole. And the parts come from the whole. Do you see how I can make a biological argument that the level of development doesn't add anything human to the life? The life is there, creating the parts from the beginning. I I don't even need to use the Bible to do that. I, I could... But this is a biological argument that's true regardless of what the Bible says. It really should blow you away. So if you disagree with me, if you say, you know what, I just can't buy into that. This thing looks like a squid. It looks like nothing human. I would just say you've got a big problem on your hands because if it's not a whole human life from the beginning, you then are therefore required to give the list of what more must be present before you will give this human status. What more needs to be there than what is already there that you don't see? You need a list. And what gets on your list? Brain waves, a beating heart, a liver, fingernail. What what gets on your list? And then let me just challenge you on this very idea. You just give me your list of what belongs to a human emotional awareness. They have to be self-conscious. Two days old, that thing won't even know if it's aborted. Okay, so, so... awareness that harm is being done to it, you're giving me your list, am I free to add on to your list? What if I want a boy? And it's not the human I want until I see boy parts. Can I say that if I don't see what's on my list, it's not a person anymore? Sex-selective abortion is a big problem that's coming. What if I say I'd like to see a certain racial profile, a certain skin color, What if I say I'd like to see a certain IQ level and that's on my list? How can you criticize anything I'm putting on my list if you've got a list? You can't. You have a big problem on your hands. If you say, I don't see a human, yet anybody can make a list of what adds up to being a human and you can say nothing about their list. We've seen in history what happens when one Nation decides who is and isn't human based on their ethnic identity. You can say nothing because they have their list and you have yours. It's completely, entirely subjective once we start making lists. What if your list includes things that can be lost after birth? Two arms, two legs, you could lose those. Did you just lose your personhood? Did you just lose your humanity, your value, because you now don't have things that you demanded of the child inside, consciousness. This person is not even conscious, not even capable of having consciousness. What if you lose consciousness after you're born? Do you suddenly lose your humanity? Get him. 
He's unconscious. Now's our chance. What if, what if you can lose something after you're born on this list? Um, what if you include things on your list that don't develop fully until after birth? Well, they have to be able to make moral choices. A newborn is not making moral choices. Food now. It's the only thing they say. And they only use one noise to get that. How con- you know, what if your list demands things of a newborn that they don't have yet? Can we righteously put them to death? See, once, once you start making a list, it's anybody's guess when a person becomes a person. The truth is this. If you don't assign personhood and value at the moment of conception, you have no consistent, rational basis to assign personhood at any other point of development. Did you hear that? If you don't assign personhood and value at the moment of conception, you don't have any rational, consistent basis on which to assign it at any other point of development. It's completely arbitrary. And ignorance is not an excuse, as we've already seen, if we're dealing with human beings. You can't say that because I can't know, I have the freedom to act. Ignorance is not an excuse. Size, level of development. The third one is environment. Environment. So where is this living being? Well, residence doesn't create value or personhood. Um, There are some who are extremely pro-choice who would claim that even in a late-term pregnancy that child can be aborted. Um, And as I said, up until 2007, the government technically allowed for a partial birth abortion, which is late in the pregnancy, a child could be partially delivered and aborted completely. And it's legally permissible. This comes from the belief that because the child is in the mother, it's not yet a living being. And yet I would say this is profoundly irrational to say that a child who is four seconds away from taking its first breath outside of the womb um, is not yet a human. That a child who is six inches away from entering in to this world lacks personhood. And, and that we have no moral obligation to give this child all of our love and all of our care and all of our protection. I think one writer got it right when he said, partial birth abortion is one of the most chilling medical atrocities in human history. I agree, you cannot prove how environment or movement from one place to another adds personhood, creates humanity. You can't prove that. It's irrational. And it's a very self-serving argument to say because it so happens to be located inside another human life, it is therefore not a human life. That's an inconsistent argument and it's very self-serving. So size, level of development, environment, and the last one is degree of dependency. So this is a big one people will use. They'll say, well, it, it can't survive on its own. It's so dependent on somebody else. And because of its dependency, it's not an independent living being. Well, independence doesn't create value or personhood. It's the kind of thing that is living that creates its value and its personhood. There are a lot of people who are alive who are dependent on other people. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> newborns are dependent for everything. They can't just get up and make themselves a sandwich. And when's the last time a two-year-old went grocery shopping for himself? I mean, sometimes high schoolers, you know, you wonder if they're ever going to be able to survive on their own based on how dependent they still are on their parents for certain things. Uh, Does dependency take away your humanity? Does independence create personhood? Uh, What about people who have a lifetime where they have to be on dialysis to clean out their kidneys? Are they suddenly less human? Um, I have a buddy who's uh, the pastor of Harvest North Raleigh. He was uh, was born 
and his, his immune system and his blood lacked, I think, three of the four different forms of defenses that you need to stay alive. He is, he is, for life, he requires uh, blood transfusions for his immune system to keep him alive. Sorry, pal. Wish you were independent, but we can just get rid of you because you can't make it on your own? I mean, does that consistently apply to life outside of the womb? No. So how can we therefore apply that to life inside the womb? We can't. We cannot consistently say, because uh, the human life at its earliest stage is dependent for its existence, therefore it does not matter if we kill it. That doesn't make sense. So here we are. Can you, if you agree with me, articulate to someone, hey, listen, four ways that the unborn differs from you. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. None of them can create or take away humanity. Can you share that with people? And if you disagree with me, can you honestly make a good, strong case that size or level of development or environment or degree of dependency can create a humanity or can prove that it's not there? You have a hard, hard road ahead of you to convince anybody of that. But I do know that there are many arguments out there, and I think we should get ready to start answering people when they have good questions. So that number four, I'm just going to throw out a several of these common arguments and just give you one or two lines on how you might respond to that. And maybe these are the ones you're thinking of if you disagree with me and you'd like to know what I have to say about that. Number four, let's learn how to answer with grace and truth. Let's not be angry, clinical, scientific, or heartless. Let's be gracious and truthful as we talk to people about this. First, let me talk Christian to Christian, people who are pro-life and who make an argument uh, to the church because they don't think the church is doing enough to fight this battle. Job, uh, you can write these down. They're not in your notes. But some will say Christians need to take more drastic action to stop abortion. Church is not doing enough. And I've encountered many of these people, some, some who will sit down with the pastor and say, listen, if you're not showing these graphic gory pictures on Sunday and warning your people to get out there and, and get on the bullhorn and stop people from going into these clinics, you are disobeying God. Let me just talk to, on my side of the argument, the extremists and the radicals, because I know they're out there. Um, If you have in your heart any desire to be violent, criminal, hateful, you are not doing what God wants you to do. And you need to repent. Because the way you're going about promoting life is disgracing to the God who gave it to you. And he will hold you account for your sinful approach to something that you consider to be sinful. Some pro-lifers are sinful and violent, but let's admit most aren't. So I just needed to talk to those people out there who are angry that the church or Christians are not doing drastic things. Let me just tell you, guard your heart, because God expects you to be loving above all else. Above all else. If you're not there yet, you need to get there. So let me now talk about answering those who disagree with us with grace and truth. Some would say this. Some would say, I support a woman's right to choose. What do I say if someone says to me, you know what, I support a woman's right to choose? We have to first realize that this is a minimization of language. They're condensing a very complicated thing down to pro-choice. Are you in favor of a choice? It's minimizing the issue. Um, And it's really a manipulation of language because if I say no it sounds like I'm against all choice or all women. And um, that's manipulation. Obviously, let's face it, nobody is pro-every choice, right? Are you pro-every choice? Are you in favor of a woman's right to choose anything? I think that nobody falls into that category. 
Would you be, for example, pro a woman's choice to let her two-year-old babysit her nine-month-old while she goes clubbing? How many of you would be pro that choice? So you're not pro-choice. Huh, see? So we are all pro-choices we think are morally responsible. That's true of all of us. And what I would say is, if someone says, well, I support a woman's right to choose, I would say, you know what? I support a woman's right to make morally responsible choices. And I support a man's right to make morally responsible choices. But I don't support a man or a woman's right to make morally irresponsible choices. And you know what? I think you agree with me. Because they do. They will hold people to account for morally irresponsible choices. Um, Out of this argument or objection, I support a woman's right to choose, come many other forms of it. Well, a woman gets to choose what's best for her health. A woman gets to choose what's right for her body. So now they're talking about privacy and health care. It all comes back, though, to this central question. What is the unborn? What is the unborn? Is it a human life? If it is, I think a woman should be held morally responsible for how she treats every human life, including those at the earliest stage of development. Every human life. Sometimes people use this argument to go to safety. You know what? A woman should have the right to make a safe choice. And if abortion is illegal, she's going to run off you know, to people who are going to hurt her, and so she needs a safe choice. All right, is the issue safety when we're dealing with morally irresponsible choices. A bank robber is not making a safe choice. Should we say, listen, bank robbery needs to get safer. I mean, this guy could get hurt. Let's pass some laws to make bank robbery safer because if it's not legal, people are going to get hurt. No. When we're talking about things that are morally irresponsible, our goal is not safety for the person who's doing it. Our goal is sanctity for the person who's being taken advantage of. Just as though we wouldn't make Drinking and driving any more safer because people could get hurt. We're so not going to make this safer. Or we're not going to make our judgment based on what makes the woman safer. That's not the line of reasoning we should follow. So Christians need to take drastic action to stop abortion. We talked about that. I support a woman's right to choose. Yes, to make morally responsible choices. Sure. Next one. What about extreme cases? You know, what about rape? Or what about the, if the life of the mother is, is in danger? Uh, What I would say is this, both of these are incredibly rare, so if you're dealing with someone who personally has encountered that predicament, like, hey, hey, do you know anybody who's gone through that? Usually they'll say no. So just understand what's going on here is definitely emotional manipulation. I'm going to grab a rape victim and bring them into this conversation to give emotional weight to my argument. It's very emotionally manipulative. If you're dealing with someone who has lived through this, by all means, my goodness, we have so much to talk about. And yet, if we're dealing with someone who has not lived through this, it's a distraction. What I would say is this. This is my opinion. What I would say is, hey, listen, both of those are important, but very rare. About 0.118% of abortions happen because the life of the mother is affected or threatened. Less than 1%. Less than 1% of abortions happen because uh, a woman alleges rape. Less than 1%. So you know what? Listen, I'm just going to give those to you. Let's say, yes, let's say a woman has a right to get an abortion in those two instances. Now let's talk about the remaining 99% of abortions that have happened. How do you feel about those? Because we've trimmed the number down now from 59 million total abortions that have happened in the U.S., we're down to 58,500,000. Let's talk about those. Tell me about those. They are on the hook. 
Extreme cases are rare. I would ask the person to make their case for the other 99%. And if they can't, I would at least ask them to limit their view on abortion to those two things. Are you willing right here and right now to say those are the only two times people can do it? Well, well, no, I, well then give me a reason for the other 58,500,000. If you can't, why do you support it? Next, sometimes this one comes up. Well, every child should be wanted. Another uh, way you can articulate this is how can you force a woman to have a child she doesn't want? Uh, So the mother is the victim here of you forcing her to do what she doesn't want to do. Um, This argument can also be, uh, they can turn the, the stakes up on this by saying, listen, if the child is unwanted, do you know that it's probably going to lead to a child being neglected or heaven forbid abused? Is that what you want for this child? And um, again, this is just emotional manipulation. It comes back to the same question, what is the unborn? Is the unborn a human life? If you can show me how this is not a human life, I'll agree with you. If you can sh- but if it is a human life, does your reasoning that because it's unwanted, it therefore can be terminated, can we apply that? I mean, how many parents, six months after having a baby at three in the morning, struggle with having second thoughts about what they just did? Did we really want this? How many parents with college students who haven't left the home yet really, really want them to leave? They're unwanted in this home. Have they lost their humanity? Can the want of the mother create or destroy the humanity of the child? It can't. It's a very emotional argument. It's self-serving, but it's not consistent. And you can't, you can't use your reasoning once the child leaves the womb. So it doesn't work in the womb. Every child should be wanted. Next, some people will say, well, I'm pro-life, but people shouldn't be told what to do. You know what? That's my choice, but I'm not going to tell anybody else what to think. They have to make up their own mind. Um, do you consistently apply this version, this view of morality to other things that are criminal? Should a government make laws or anything against drunk driving? You know, I mean, my opinion is people shouldn't drive drunk, but who am I to tell them how to live their lives? No, your view of morality, you will impose upon others. Why, why is this a different circumstance? Why suddenly is there this everybody gets their own view? The whole purpose of a law is for authority and society to force people to do what is morally responsible. This is what civilized society has always done. We force people to do what is morally responsible. If the unborn is a human life, we should consistently force people to treat that human life in a responsible, respectful way. And there is simply no value to you saying, well, this is my opinion, but I'm not going to force it on anyone else. Okay? Um, Your moral expectations and those of society are always put on other people. Why, Why can't a new father abuse a toddler for fun? Why? Because other people tell him it's wrong. Because the government comes in and says, you can't do that. It's the nature of law. So don't appeal to this, well, that's me, but you can make your own choice. That's not how law and morality works in any other area. Um, Other people will say this, you know, you're forcing your religion on others. You should stop forcing your religion on others. I've shown today I don't need the Bible to demonstrate there's a full human life there from cell one. I don't need the Bible to show you that. So it's not just a religious view I'm sharing. It's a medical view. It's a biological view. I'm also making moral arguments about how we treat humans in other settings. But I can use the Bible 
Who, who is anyone to say that because you have religious reasons for your morality, you can't admit them in the court of law? I would actually challenge you on that because if you don't reach for the Bible and you don't have any divine cause to give a human life value or personhood, you are pulling it out of thin air. You can't show that this human life has been made in God's image. There is no rational basis for you to assign this human being personhood, rights, or value. You are pulling that out of thin air. You have no basis to say this is now a living person who's worthy of rights and value. You have nowhere to get those things if you don't reach for a divine being who infused meaning and purpose into the life from the beginning. You lose everything if you don't reach for a religious reason to give human beings life. Our country is built on the foundation that law and liberty comes because there is a moral being at the, at the throne of the universe. He gives value and meaning and purpose to life. If you don't find it there, you can't find it anywhere else. You're inventing it. And therefore, government is responsible for giving and taking away value and purpose to any life. So don't back away if someone's like, well, you're forcing your religion on others. Hey, I can get morality from faith. Our country gets morality from faith if you search the founding documents. So that doesn't overrule what I'm saying. Bring it all back to please share with me your argument, your rational, moral, spiritual, medical argument that what I see in the womb is not a human life. Please demonstrate that for me. Show me that. Explain that. I will listen for an hour for you to show me how that's not a human life. And if you can't demonstrate that for me, you should treat that human life like you treat every other human life. The Bible says several other things that help shed light on this topic. Genesis 25, 23, the Lord says to Rebekah, who's pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. God looks into the womb and what math does he do? Not only is he again commenting on the future destinies of these unborn beings, because he knows they're going to live, he says two nations are in your womb. He adds up all of the lives that will come from those two men. And he sees all of them, millions of lives. The nation of Israel, the nation of Edom, he sees all of it starting right there in the womb. Boy, if we reach in and end a life in God's economy, we could be ending a nation right there in that womb. Two nations are in your womb. In Exodus 21, 23, we see what sort of laws were imposed back in Moses' day. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, meaning the baby survives, the one who hit her shall be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. The penalty for causing a um, premature birth that results in the death was death. It was a capital punishment. Special protection was allotted for a pregnant woman. Special punishments were allotted for ending the life of that child that was in the womb. In Psalm 82, 3 to 4, God says this, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He's therefore calling upon everybody around to seek the justice and the freedom of those who can't defend themselves. That would include unborn humans. In Leviticus 24 to 5, it said uh, the, some of the Israelites were sacrificing their born children to the false god Moloch. What was God's opinion on that? 
It says, and if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. What do we see here? We see that it was a capital crime for the person to sacrifice their child and God held the village accountable that looked away. The village that looked away was held accountable for what they were doing. Now hear me, this does not give anyone biblical justification to start going off and putting people to death to prevent this. This was the law of the land in Israel and this is now no longer in effect. But it is sobering to realize that it was a capital crime in God's day not only to end the life in the womb but to look away when it was happening punishable by death. That's God's emotions about this issue. So what's your opinion? Are you forming it? What's your mind? Have you grown in your conviction today? Let me just close by sharing a story of a woman named Abby Johnson. She wrote a book called Unplanned. And her testimony, I think, uh, truly reveals what it means to be open-minded, to face the facts, to deal with reality. Uh, Abby Johnson had worked for Planned Parenthood for eight years. And she explains that she began working for Planned Parenthood, she says in her book, believing that its purpose was primarily to prevent unwanted pregnancies, reduce the number of abortions. She said that was my goal, to save lives, care for women. And then she shares the story how after she had been managing, she had been the manager of a Planned Parenthood site for two years, uh, she finally got called in after eight years total to come in and help with an abortion. She had never helped with an abortion The doctor was shorthanded. They needed her to come in. They needed her to hold the wand on the ultrasound so the doctor could see what he was after and can terminate the pregnancy. This was the first time she had participated in an abortion after eight years of being there. And here's what she says. She says, I instantly felt my stomach tightening and I said, I don't want to watch what is about to happen. She heard the nurse say 13 weeks after taking measurements, And that reminded her when she went in for a checkup of her daughter at 13 weeks. She said to herself, I saw the baby's side wrong. It just looked wrong. I had a sudden urge to yell, stop, to shake the woman and say, look at what's happening to your baby. Wake up, hurry, stop them. But even as I thought those words, I looked at my own hand. I was one of them. I was frozen in disbelief. After the abortion happened, she let go of the probe and let it fall. She said, I can feel my heart pounding, pounding so hard my neck throbbed. I tried to breathe. I couldn't breathe. I stared at the screen and it was black. The doctor said, Abby, are you okay? And right there, standing beside the table, my hand on the weeping woman's belly, this thought came from deep within me. Never again. Never again. Hey, right at that moment, her mind was changed. Her convictions were formed. I think you should also have that moment where you ask, what do I believe about this? Let's pray together right now. Father in heaven, we thank you that in your word, you give us reasons, you give us illustrations, you give us arguments, O Lord. And you help us to understand these complicated issues, O Lord. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us knowledge. We pray that you would give us grace as we have this conversation. Oh Lord, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking. 
We pray that you would help us to understand the gravity of the decision that is being made. And Lord, I pray for anyone who perhaps up until this point truly did think that this was not a human life, that it was not worthy of respect, that it is not a human person. Oh, Father, I pray based on the biblical evidence, the moral reasoning, based on the biology, based on the medical data, based on the testimonies of those who have seen it. Oh, Father, I call on people in this room right now to repent of a view that grieves you, to turn away from a system of thought that leads to death, knowing that they will be held accountable for their views, knowing that you on Judgment Day will bring up if they looked away from this process that is happening, millions and millions and millions of human lives gone. Oh, Father, convict them deeply to the heart, just as you did, Abby, and show them, Lord, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong, and it cannot be justified, and it must be stopped. Help us to have these conversations with grace and with truth, oh, Lord. And we pray this in your name. Amen.